in the wake of the storm. Welcome to Small Talk with the Lees. I'm your host, Brandon Lee, and co-host, Justin Lee. And we're joined by Alejandro and Andre. And we're four Mormons discussing the topics in the CES letter. Or in this case, a topic that's not discussed in the CES letter, but could be the smoking gun. So we're going to talk about Deutero-Isaiah, which is basically the problem of an anachronism that Isaiah isn't actually written by Isaiah, yet it's quoted in the Book of Mormon many times when Lehi couldn't possibly have known about it if it's true that it wasn't written by Isaiah. And so we're going to get into very technical details here. I'm actually recording this after we just finished our recording. And so it's like a three-hour session. Um, I'm going to say I think the three hours was necessary to really understand the arguments here and flesh them out from both the apologetic side and the argumentative side. And it's not a debate just in Mormonism, but it's actually one that's debated with between evangelicals and liberal Christians. So the problem of Deutero-Isaiah is not one unique to Mormonism. That being said, we provide some ways to analyze this as a faithful Mormon and also to do it in an intellectually honest way, such as the examples of Abraham Gileadi, B.H. Roberts, and Grant Hardy. So we discuss their views as well as other views presented by David Bakavoy and other uh, biblical scholars. And you're going to get a really comprehensive outlook and understanding of these issues. If you want to look into the specific details of them, the PowerPoint is going to be posted in some form, maybe a Google Doc, with the podcast description. And you can look at the specific scripture verses and look them up on your own time. So that being said, you're in for a treat. The first part's going to be an introduction to the Deutero-Isaiah problem. And the second part will be an entire... Uh, systematic outlook at the main arguments for and against multiple authorship of the book of Isaiah. All right, welcome back to Small Talk with the Lees. This is part 11 of our CS letter discussion. And today we're going to focus on, on one of the biggest anachronisms, probably in my view of the Book of Mormon, and that's the Deutero-Isaiah problem. So the CS letter doesn't actually talk about this specific issue. And I think that's one of the actual weaknesses of the CS letter, because I think this is one of the strongest arguments against the historicity of the Book of Mormon. Yet the CS also, letter doesn't mention it. It's also really technical. So um, the author of the CS letter isn't like running at the highest <laughs> speed yet. So that's probably why he couldn't include it. Or he probably <laughs> didn't want to... <laughs> It, he might have, probably would have confused listeners. That's actually, I think too. that's more accurate is that the, the nature of the CS letter is it has to hit you like, like a salesman hits you, you know? It, it right. reads like a really interesting book. If you throw the Deutero-Isaiah problem, you can't even pronounce that word, Deutero-Isaiah. <laughs> so, so, yeah. I um, guess he could have just put multiple Isaiah authorship. Yeah. Like I said, he's not running that fast. Like He's doing the best he can. So let's just describe this. <laughs> I, I want to give some background to this problem. And this is basically a problem that not just LES members face, but actually evangelicals face. And this whole issue stems from something called biblical studies, which is kind of like the scholarly study of the Bible, the academic setting of it. And... 
this biblical studies has been met with a lot of resistance from the evangelical types and that includes LDS members and the church. And so I kind of just want to start with this quote by Greg Prince, who we talked about is a defender of the faith of the LDS faith. And he kind of points out that we need to stop criticizing tool of biblical studies. And instead, once we accept it, then we can actually start from a whole new position, a stronger foundation. So I'll just read the quote. He says, if you look at the history of biblical studies, you'll see that the initial years of higher criticism a century ago sent shockwaves through religious communities, particularly the fundamentalist ones whose houses were built on sandy foundations of scriptural literalism and inerrancy. Instead, what happened and continues to happen, thanks to biblical scholarship, is that the Bible is in a far stronger position than it was prior to higher criticism. Once my co-religionists who are defending their heel are able to make one paradigm shift, they will find the doors flung wide open to a deeper appreciation appreciation of what the book of mormon really is and i think this is a different quote but there's another quote where he basically said once we accept the foundation of biblical studies or higher criticism we can jump to the higher planes of of a more i don't remember what he said but a more honest interpretation and analysis and an application of scriptural texts including the book of mormon so I just want to point out here, the word criticism here is not someone who's attacking the Bible. What it is actually trying to say is criticism is a very scholarly word in that you're analyzing the text from a critical or objective point of view in the historical context. Yeah, I think that has to do with everything. You know, we, we look for truth, right? Isn't that what, what it's all about? And you kind of want to look for it wherever it's found. And I think even, even Brigham Young talked about that. He said, you know, Wherever truth is, we claim it, you know, and that's what, that's what we want to find. Yeah, that's a common theme of Joseph Smith, too. One of my favorite quotes is something like where he says that we look for truth wherever it may come from. Right? And he was talking about even the Protestants, even the Presbyterians. Yeah. He didn't mention the atheists or the, but I would assume, you know. We can include them. We can include them. We can include yeah. them. <laughs> and I think uh, just like a quick, by the way, um, the many different episodes that we've done on the CES letter has zoomed in and some people have even messaged me and told me they think it zoomed in unnecessarily deep into the weeds where we lose sight of things and it causes listeners to lose sight of things that are actually important in the church. And I guess to that, I would just respond. I think we're doing the best we can. Um, I think there is a lot of value in looking at these podcast episodes in aggregate and kind of seeing how together there's kind of a common theme that's running through this is what we want to do. I mean, maybe speaking for myself, but maybe the others as well is provide a systematic approach, a framework that allows for faithful holding to the church, but also not being too, I guess, literal or holding to a historical interpretation It's not necessarily that we, we rest our testimonies, on the historical infallibility of the church, but rather there's many other aspects that are more important. We think that we can do this. And I think zooming in a lot on these issues starts to show how many rabbit holes there are, how many nuanced issues there are. And you could dig into these things for years and academics do this all the time, but it's, it comes to a point where you're like, well, I don't even know how much more I can go into this because there's so much stuff 
But I think that kind of shows that how difficult some of those historical problems are. And that's not necessarily where the religious value lies with the doctrines and, and the teachings that our church espouses. I've kind of thought of this podcast as like my own Descartes meditations. So I walk you through kind of my thought process of, of how I'm systematically interpreting Mormonism from this religious framework, right? Because I think there's that false dichotomy of, of uh, science versus religion or biblical studies versus a faithful scholar, right? That you can't be both. And, and I've, I've had people respond a lot of that Book of Mormon episode that we posted, you know, and I asked the question, can you find value in the Book of Mormon if you dismiss the historicity or that it is an ancient record? And, you know, I got a lot of different interesting responses. One of them was is particularly interesting, and it was by Jared Anderson. And he talked about how um, he's a biblical scholar, by the way. Uh, and he's of the LDS tradition. He studied under Bart Ehrman, who's an atheist now. And he actually said that, you know, we don't, I think the strongest framework to do this in is not to analyze it that it's either historical or not historical, and, but rather to focus on the value and then allow for the historicity, but rather than dismiss it. And so I think that's kind of a, a good point that he made that when we're trying to address all sorts of audiences, right, from, from the person that stumbles upon the CS letter or the, 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 the biblical scholars or the, um, the Mormon studies people that are looking in on this, right, and we're trying to address all sorts of these audiences, that we are able to, to show that we can, we can communicate with each side and find some type of common ground. And I think that common ground is going to be that there is value that you can pull out from this. And it's not just a little bit of value. It's an entire framework that frames your morality, uh, your behavior, and the way that you, you direct your lives. And so that's where I really find the value of religion. And I'm coming from that angle, whereas opposed to maybe others talking about the CS letter going to either dismiss it um, because they're so set on this on what they've grown up with learning and how they've seen religion this, this entire time. And also versus the other people on the other hand, who are just so easy to dismiss religion and Book of Mormon and Joseph Smith, because they're just reading the Book of Mormon in order to dismiss it. Yeah. yeah. Brent, I, I think, oh, go for it. Sorry, I, I think a big part of it, you know, is what we were talking about before, like the, this idea of like looking at things kind of with an, with an open mind, and really not trying to reduce them, really trying to, to open us up to like the complexity of things. Like I, I always think of this story when it comes to like traditions and things like that. Uh, like for example, I, I was told this a couple of years ago, but like someone's, someone's mom was teaching them how to cook fish. And so they cut the head off the fish off and then they put it in the frying pan and cook the fish. And so then the daughter asked the mom, she's like, why, how come you cut the head off of the, of the fish? And she's like, oh, that's how the recipe goes. Well, who taught you the recipe? my mom so then you know the mom asked her mom how come you cut the head off the fish and she's like oh that's how my mom taught me how to do it and then she asked the grandma the grandma says i just didn't have a frying pan big enough for the fish so she cut the head off right and so you look back on these things and like we're we're discovering the purity with, within the gospel you know some things are carried through through tradition some things some things you just hear and repeat and things like that and so you're you know when it comes to Bible studies and things like that, you're looking at, at the history of things and not, and, and taking away 
like the the traditions that have been passed down that maybe aren't the purity of like the gospel aren't the purity of yeah. what the message is trying to, to communicate I, so there's no there's no badness and and looking back and saying hey this is this is what we find especially what we're going to do now with isaiah right this is this is what we find let's see what's the other message what's the other thing we can learn about it so i just want to sum up what you said there with one quote i think his name patrick mason i believe he's the head of mormon studies at uvu or sorry not uvu um the one up by logan usu usu yeah he said we put too much truth into our truth cart and what we have to do now is empty that truth out that is unnecessary right so what we're trying to do is is get to the real um let's say value that is in the gospel or in the church or in the scriptures and specifically this problem of the deutero isaiah problem points out a really huge problem for those who want to focus on the historicity of it. And I think, you know, this presentation is not going to make you decide one way or the other. Of course, I have my strong opinions about this, but I'm going to try to do my best to present both the apologetic responses and the responses to the responses and kind of how this whole discussion has been playing out in not just the LDS field, but also the evangelical versus the liberal Christians field. So, yeah, um, yeah. I just wanted to add one more thing is, um, um, I know that there are people who um, have complained about how, how we zoom in, but it's important that we do so because um, when you when you adopt a frame, the 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 downside is that you can fall into confirmation bias, and so examining these things helps you like um, it, it helps you be less susceptible to that, and also. Um, when you come across these things, it's not so shocking because everything that gets unknown or that's novel to you will shock you to a degree. And so we're trying to play both sides and like adopt a framework, but then also explore like what the criticisms are so that we can, one, so that we can overcome our personal biases, but then also gain an insight into what um, our LDS tradition holds. Yeah, dude, there's something to be said there. You never want to, you never want to dismiss faith, right? Because you, because you know with confirmation bias there's this like inclination of, of wanting to wanting things to be real right wanting things to be the way that you think they are and that's not a bad thing uh not not all the time sometimes it is but not all the time because like you know jordan peterson kind of talks about this too he's like you can't know everything right and because you can't know everything some things you just have to assume or believe right and so uh you know so when when we're looking at these topics and, and things like that it's just more power to you to know more about it, know more about like uh, the things that are being studied, the things that are, that are true and, and, and historical. And then you can, you know, you can go from there, but there's, you know, as we've talked about in the church, like there's no, there's no goodness and ignorance, right? The more you know about something, the more you can uh, go based off that. Right. And but, I, I think the greatest example of that in our tradition, LDS tradition is BH Roberts, right? Cause he wrote that entire the studies on the Book of Mormon or whatever, and he pointed out all of the strongest arguments you could find against his own faith. That's called still manning. And then he responded to all of them, well, all the ones that he could, right? And we're actually going to show what his view, a hundred years back, he actually dealt with this problem of Deuter Isaiah. And I'm going to show you what his responses were. Of course, they're outdated. They don't deal with the latest information in biblical studies, but they're there. And I think that's a, a role model to follow of an intellectual who was also an apostle of the Elias church. Well, let's just jump in if there's no other further comments. Let's do it. 
Okay. So this uh, Deutero-Isaiah problem, um, I think to really outline what the problem is, uh, people familiar with the Book of Mormon will know this kind of timeline. Okay. And, and so we know that around 740 is when Isaiah was a prophet. Isaiah died around um, the six, 698 BC. And then Lehi and his family. So the Book of Mormon talks about this family named Lehi and Nephi, you know, and they're, Lehi's the father, Nephi's the son. And they actually escaped Jerusalem around 600 BC. Okay, so that date is key, right? So it's either 600 or 597 or 593, you know, but in general consensus, Lehi leaves Jerusalem about 600 years before Christ. Okay, now that's not actually important specifically what year Lehi leaves, as long as that Lehi leaves Jerusalem before it's destroyed. Because what happens later is we know Jerusalem actually falls um, to the Babylonians. And that happens in 588 BC. So about 10 years after Lehi leaves. And it's not until 50 years later, 538 BC here, where Cyrus, king of Persia, actually defeats the Babylonians and he lets the Jews return out of Babylonian captivity back to Jerusalem. Okay, so there's a whole lot of dates there and uh, hopefully listing it out here helps. But the key issue of the Deutero-Isaiah problem is, those of you familiar with the Book of Mormon text know that Lehi went back, got the plates, and those plates had the writings of Isaiah on them, so they claim. And, Isaiah, and Lehi took those plates before the fall of Jerusalem. Okay, and then they traveled to the Americas. Now, the Book of Mormon quotes Isaiah all throughout. You know, it quotes all sorts of chapters from Isaiah extensively, probably the most quoted um, biblical book in the Hebrew Bible that is in the Book of Mormon. Now, the, the issue here comes when suddenly biblical scholarship is identifying this book of Isaiah not as written by a single author, Isaiah, but rather it's composed of multiple authors, and they split it into three main parts, Proto-Isaiah, Deutero-Isaiah, and Trito-Isaiah. So that's this slide. Just first, second, and third. First Isaiah, second Isaiah, and third Isaiah, exactly. And so the book of Isaiah is split into 66 chapters nowadays. And so they, they put the first 30 chapters as first Isaiah, the next uh, 16 chapters as second Isaiah, and then the remaining 11 chapters as third Isaiah. Okay, so what happens is the, the real issue of anachronism of the Book of Mormon comes when we look at Deutero-Isaiah and the biblical scholars... Have Wait, would you please define anachronism? Yeah, sure. Anachronism is something that is out of historical context. So like if, if uh, people are talking about Christians in, let's say, 2000 BC, that's probably an anachronistic word, right? Mm -hmm. If you refer to someone as a Christian in 2000 BC. Gotcha. It, it right. like doesn't fit. It's historically. It doesn't fit the timeline. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, like someone in the 1800s mentioned, oh, yeah. Well, I can't wait to go home and use the internet or, I don't know, something like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it doesn't make sense, right? There's no way it was written in 1800. Yeah, if, you're, if your boomer grandma says that she was a, a TikToker back in the 60s, you know, you know that's anachronistic. It, it couldn't have happened. And so the, the anachronism problem here um, that the CS letter doesn't mention, but I think is the strongest example of anachronism, is that Deutero-Isaiah is dated at a later date. 
about 530-ish post-exilic, which means the exile is when the Jews left Jerusalem to Babylonia because they were slaves. And then post-exilic means after they return, pretty much, when Cyrus of Persia let them back. So, okay. Brandon, just to clarify for the listeners, so then yeah. Lehi getting the plates before Jerusalem's destroyed, that means there shouldn't be any Deutero-Isaiah in there, right? Second Isaiah. Exactly. But then what we do yes. see in there is that he's quoting from Second Isaiah. So that's where the anachronism is. How is he able mm-hmm. to quote from Second Isaiah when that shouldn't exist when he stole it? Because based on that, not stole, but when they took it from Jerusalem, it doesn't fit in that timeline. So that's right. How you I should my be the editor is- of the CS letter, Justin, because you just worded exactly how Jeremy Reynolds would have worded it. So but, how, what, what evidence do they have that it was written by different people? Right. So we're going to get into the multi, multiple yeah. authorship versus single authorship debate here. But I just want to point out real quick before we go into that, we're not going to go into the technicalities of these specific verses, but they're here for the reader or the observer, the listener to explore on their own. You know, this can be your next come follow me study. Um, so here <laughs> we have the Book of Mormon verse, right? Let's say First Nephi 21 uh, verses 14 through 21. And it, it quotes from Isaiah, Isaiah 49, 14 through 21. As you can see, Isaiah 49 is in the Deutero-Isaiah portion, which is dated as to material that would have been written after Lehi left Jerusalem. So it's weird that he would be able to have access to that. Okay, and the, the red here is specifically problematic verses. These are the most problematic ones. I think they use, it's been a while since I've read these, um, but I believe they use words like uh, desolation or like destruction, okay? which would be referring and to the Just briefly, Andre, they just, they analyze a lot of like the use of historical figures or like um, certain words and stuff that would have been used in, in times. And then they kind of determine it based on that. But I think- Right, so biblical studies is looking at, at the text, at the sense. sources, at the Dead Sea Scrolls that say, they're gonna look at everything we have. They're gonna look at the content in it. They're gonna look for patterns of breaks, let's say, um, different styles of uses of word, um, all that kind of stuff. Okay, so um, not only is Deutero-Isaiah a problem, though. So uh, Fares actually uh, tries to address this Deutero-Isaiah problem, um, and we're going to talk a little bit about their arguments. There's other problems, though. So Proto-Isaiah, chapters 1 through 30, that is actually not all written before Lehi left actually. So there's a lot of arguments that Isaiah 2 through 14 all actually have later redactions and edits. Uh, and some of them were actually written later, not just edited later. Um, so there's a lot of evidence for that. So that's problematic. So I, I have a question. Why would they all be compiled in the same book? Why wouldn't they be changed to different books? Why would they all be kept under Isaiah's book? Yeah. Um, so, that's a good um, what? Yeah, so when, when I was studying this, um, one scholar, Abraham uh, Galeadi, I think is his name, he makes the argument for why it's a unity, and then he also makes arguments for why it was all unified in one book. And we can touch that later. Um, but uh, he, he makes a, a literary case for that. So um, good question. It's going to take some unpacking to get there, though. When we'll get there. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a... a, a f- good surface value argument in favor of single authorship, right? At its face. Well, it comes in one book for us. Okay. So, so we'll get into that and the Dead Sea Scrolls a little bit. Um, I want to point out an even thornier problem. So Trito Isaiah is certainly dated, almost certainly dated. I guess Abraham 
Gileadi wouldn't agree with that. But almost all the biblical scholars would say, certainly Trito Isaiah is way later. And Fair would go so far to say as, luckily we don't have Trito Isaiah in our Book of Mormon. Okay. And David Bakavoy and Brent Metcalf have, and Colby Townsend, three biblical scholars in Mormon studies. Sorry, Brent Metcalf's not a biblical scholar. But three Mormon studies people have pointed out that even though there's not explicit quotations of Trito Isaiah in the Book of Mormon, there are references to Trito Isaiah that are contained in the Book of Mormon. So is there, is there a consensus that there are three different, like that first, second, third part of Isaiah? That's a consensus? It's, that... it's a consensus of, among biblical scholars, yes. Yeah, okay. Yep. Yeah, and not only that, it's also one of the longest standing consensus. And so, um, well, yeah, within biblical scholarship. What do you mean by long so, like since, so, since early, early? Yeah, well, or yeah, so yeah, it's kind of confusing. So I guess the lay reader, the average reader of the book of, of the Bible will say, oh, well, yeah, of course, Isaiah is one book, one author. Um, but then as biblical studies as a field, they discovered relatively early that it's, it's had um, multiple authors. Oh, right. Uh -huh. And we've known that for a really long, like that idea has been thrown around for like a really long time. And so arguments about it being a unified, like legit arguments of it being a unified work are relatively new um, compared to the, uh, to the arguments that there are multiple authors. So it's, it's I, a consensus. What do you mean legit as in the ones that actually seriously take into consideration the, the, the arguments that have been made in favor of. Yeah. Authors? Like, yeah. Like, like, um, like articulating like rational argumentation that it's a unified work are relatively so, like newer. Okay. So I have another question. So, so Isaiah is, is said to be a prophet during this time of, of Jerusalem, right? And, and uh, so who are the other guys, right? Right. So, okay. So you're making a lot of points that B.H. Roberts is, is making. So I'm going to go straight to that, okay? And we're going to discuss these arguments. So, so B.H. Roberts, LDS scholar and apostle and intellectual, um, he, points, he sums up this whole problem in one perfect paragraph. I think he just words it perfectly. The difficulty presented by the higher criticism is obvious. These, if Joseph Smith is representing the first Nephi as transcribing into his Nephite records passages and whole chapters purporting to have been written by Isaiah, when as a matter of fact, those chapters were not written until 125 or 150 years after Isaiah's death, and not until 50 years after Lehi's colony has departed from Jerusalem, then Joseph Smith is representing Nephi as doing that which is impossible and throws the whole Book of Mormon under suspicion of being fraudulent. This, therefore, becomes a very interesting as well as a very important objection, and many among the higher critics will say a fatal one. Here it can only be treated in outline. It is undoubtedly worthy of exhaustive analysis. So I just want to point out that B.H. Roberts, LDS faithful member till his death, is saying this is a serious problem that we have to deal with. And that was 100 years ago, right? Now it's only gotten more serious because of the weight of the biblical scholarship underneath the evidence here. Um, I'm going to go on to the next slide. These are his arguments. And so, so B.H. Roberts is a defender of the unitary Isaiah, which means the book of Isaiah is written by Isaiah. Duh. Okay. And so here's kind of his arguments back in the 20th century and how he dealt with it. Cause he understood the problem pretty well for based on the arguments that were presented at the time. Okay. And this is all linked in the, in the bibliography. So you can go and look at what he said specifically, but here's what he said. Okay. His, his main points was that first of all, we have 
as LDS members, we have the Book of Mormon as evidence. That's the strongest evidence that Isaiah is written by Isaiah and no one else. Okay. So he, he says, after the overwhelming evidences for the truth of the Book of Mormon are taken into account. You know, so David Balkavoy pointed out, though, that this is, this is one of his least favorite arguments because like what is reasoning. that? What? Yeah. It's like circular reasoning. Right, because the question here isn't about Isaiah. The question here that we're examining is, is the Book of Mormon, let's say, a fraud or not, or is it historical or not? Right? And so we can't think use the Book of it Mormon as to defend the Book of Mormon. Yeah. So, but this is something that gets thrown around a lot. And, you know, if you go to BYU or let's say you're in CES, this is probably what's going to be stated as the main evidence is, yeah, you don't have to believe in a multiple authorship because we have the Book of Mormon to show that it's not. So, so this is going to be a hard one for a lot of people to, to, to not accept as, as credible, I guess. But yeah, I think that's like the, that's an easier response for seminary teachers or institute teachers to make because it resonates with most people that have grown up with those, these types of um, arguments of historicity, I think. So it helps them not have to dive into it. I think that's why they would want to use. Yeah, it. I, I think it's kind of avoiding the question of yeah, is the book of Mormon historical or not, right? Because maybe that's not even the question. So right, so that that's not the question here. So I I think that's a bad argument. Let's go to the next one. Isaiah is a literary genius. So B. H. Roberts is arguing that Isaiah is a literary genius. So he's able to write in different styles, a wide range of literary style. He says the largest richness in coloring and forms of expression. Okay, so that's kind of an assertion, so we can get into that more, but that's B.H. Roberts' assertion. Jesus can't be wrong when quoting Isaiah. So B.H. Roberts is making a common argument that evangelical Christians would make. That is, well, Jesus read, you know, he got up and stood up and was like, uh, what was it, the Advent or whatever? He's like, I read you this prophecy, this day it's fulfilled or something like that. Right? And that's from Isaiah like 60-something. And so if Jesus was saying, this is from the words of Isaiah, he can't be wrong about it. Okay, so one can scarcely think of Jesus being mistaken in respect of the authorship of the scripture from which he read. And we'll get more into that argument. Uh, the next argument B.H. Robert makes is Josephus' tradition. He says that Josephus, which a key point to note here is Josephus was written very, very late. So about... Um, as compared to the book of Isaiah, Josephus was written probably a hundred or so years before Christ. So that's 500 years down the road from what we're talking about. But he says, Jews convinced Cyrus to let them rebuild Jerusalem by showing Cyrus Isaiah's prophecies. It was the fact that it was foreknowledge that caused Cyrus to admire the divine power thus displayed. And basically what he's saying here is that there's this Jewish tradition that the reason why Cyrus of Persia let the Jews go back to Jerusalem and escape bondage was because the Jews said, hey, we have these writings by Isaiah and they prophesied that Cyrus, you are going to let us go back to Jerusalem. And he's like, wow, you know, and then so he sends them back to Jerusalem. So that's the argument being made here. Does that make sense? Yes. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, the last argument B.H. Robert makes is Isaiah 39 transitions well into Isaiah 40, and hence Isaiah 1 authorship describes all of 1 through 66. What he's trying to say here is that at the beginning of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah that we have today, the first chapter is kind of like an introduction, and I haven't read it actually for a long time, so I can't remember what it says specifically, but I think this is saying something like, hey, it says that this whole book is the words of Isaiah, and so... 
So that statement has to be true. And not only is that true, but the, the higher critics that like to separate proto-Isaiah from deutero-Isaiah from chapter 39 to chapter 40, well, B.H. Robert actually thinks it flows pretty well. And so he doesn't see a real divide here. And so what we're going to do, I'm going to show you those divides here in a second, and you guys can be the judge of that for yourself. Okay. So that is basically the arguments that B.H. Roberts made against uh, multiple scholarship of the book of Isaiah. He clung to the theory that it's one author, but he said, this is just an outline. This is worth exploring more. So I think he was very intellectually honest about that. You guys have any questions on this part? No. <laughs> no, okay. Okay, we're going to go on. Um, okay, so this is a quick history of LDS apologetics and how they've dealt with this Deutero Isaiah problem. So I'm just going to name a couple big names here. Grant Hardy, he's a BYU professor. He was probably the most honest about it, in my opinion. He, he says, hey, this is a huge problem, just like B.H. Roberts says. And he says, I'm not going to try to solve it. That's in his book. Um, I can't remember the name of the book. It's in reference three, though. Um, is it, um, it's not understanding the Book of Mormon, is it? Yeah, it is understanding the Book of oh, Mormon. Okay. Thank you. So, so instead, what he says is, a more promising avenue for the faithful, it seems, is to acknowledge that we probably know less about what constitutes an inspired translation than we do about ancient Israel. Okay, so he's actually kind of saying, you know what, I don't, we don't really know what translation means when Joseph Smith says, I translated the Book of Mormon. So he's kind of indicating a, a very loose translation where Joseph Smith took the essence of what was ancient and actually happened, and then he kind of expanded from there. So, so the core of the Book of Mormon is historical, maybe, but the rest of it, it's kind of uh, Joseph Smith's 19th century influence. I think that's what he's kind of hitting at there. That's kind of a Blake Osler expansionist theory. Abraham Gileadi, who uh, Alejandro mentioned, previously. So he did some literary studies. So he analyzed the literary style of, of, the, of the book of Isaiah in order to, quote unquote, he thinks he proves that it's one author and it's Isaiah. Okay. Uh, Kent Jackson, he is the, the writer. So there's this book called A Reason for Faith that Brian, oh, what's, Laura Hells uh, presents. And she goes to a bunch of LDS scholars and BYU professors and says, hey, let's get all your good, best responses to the problems of stuff that's talked about in the CES letter, let's say. And that was published in 2016, right? Three years after the CES. She did it because of the CES letter? That's my guess because she addressed stuff like Kinderhook plates that is in the CES letter. That's not really thrown around too much outside, I feel like. I yeah, think I've it's only heard that in the CES letter. I mean, in, in well, her, it wasn't it wasn't mentioned in the CS letter, but I mean, you just the you just scratch the surface and no, no, the Deuter Isaiah problem, right? Deuter Isaiah oh. is not mentioned though. So, but like so, you dig a little deeper and you run into it. So, so, so maybe the CS letter was an influence on her. She did say, "My kids have been facing all these like stuff they read online, and so I wanted to go out and ask a bunch of the best minds." Obvious, <laughs> and she actually did produce a very good book called "A Reason for Faith." I think one of the weakest arguments made in that book, though, by the way, I read this book on my mission in the MTC was the first time I read it. I didn't order it. Uh, a mission companion actually ordered it. And then he let me borrow it. And I was like, oh, interesting. I never read about Duro Isaiah or, or whatever. And I remember back when I read it back then, I, I, I read this argument by Kent Jackson. And it basically said, you know, 
the people that are talking about Dear Isaiah just don't believe in prophecy. They're just prophecy deniers. Okay. And, and so when I read that argument, I was like, oh, that's a good point. You know, who's to, who's to say Isaiah couldn't have predicted Cyrus a uh, hundred years later. And so that kind of stuck with me. And I was like, okay, this, this issue is fine. Right. Coming back and analyzing it again and seeing that's just the tip of the, the iceberg. You know, this, this prophecy denier argument is actually does not address any of the core arguments that are being made by the higher critics or the biblical scholars. So, so when I say David Bokovoy debunked this in his two-part series article on uh, rational faith, uh, that's what I mean by that, is Ken Jackson did not actually address any of the core issues. So, we're so what, what do you think about that now, the whole, if people, if people don't believe in prophecy? Yeah, so I think you can believe in prophecy and still agree that Isaiah is written by multiple authors, because the evidence for that is not necessarily talking about prophecy. It's at best indirectly related with that. What, what evidence? We're going to get to it. Okay. Just hold on one second. Yep. <laughs> okay. So the other apologetics uh, that the LDS faith brings is that, uh, so I'm going to go to this bottom bullet point here. I couldn't find the source for this, but I read it in a dialogue article talking about uh, the Book of Mormon as an expansionist thing or a midrash thing. And it basically said that, hey, Jesus, he came back. And he said, hey, you guys are missing some scriptures. Let's update it, okay? And, or Moroni, maybe when he was uh, compiling everything, he put in Isaiah into it, okay? Because they would have had access later, right? And Jesus is all-knowing, so he could put it in. So those, that's, that's an argument made. I think the key point to note there is that B.H. Roberts didn't even like that argument. He didn't put it in his, his uh, credible, list of credible arguments. So, so that one's kind of a stretch, I think, because... Mainly, it mentioned specifically which scripture was put back in when Jesus came. That was the, the prophecies of Samuel. It, had, it said nothing about Isaiah. Um, you think also, the, 100, the 116 pages? There's, <laughs> you forgot 116 pages. Of, wait, the 116 pages? What do you mean? Yeah, you think if, if there wasn't a plan for the 116 pages to be uh, replaced, you think there wouldn't be a plan for, for oh, okay. Isaiah? I see. I see. Well, maybe. So, so we'll leave that one hanging. Okay. If you want to go off that one, you can go off that one. It's an argument made by some, but I, I would note that most LDS apologists don't reference that as a, as their argument. Okay. Um, the final argument I think is the strongest one is to accept multiple or sorry, deny multiple authorship of Isaiah and, and say at the core, Isaiah is written by one author. That is Isaiah. But later on, you know, you have these scribes making errors or they're, they're purposely adding in their own material, you know. Um, and, and so any changes that you see or later datings of post-exilic material that you see is going to be an edit. It's not some original content. It's, it's an edit of what was there before. Okay, so, so let's say Isaiah is a great prophet. He can write in prophetic terms. And then later on, the scribes say, hey, you know, the, the events of the Babylonian captivity have already happened. Cyrus has already let us go back. And I'm, I'm going to write in the word Cyrus here. Okay. So, so that's kind of the argument there. And so, oh, that's interesting. That's yeah, very so they kind of swing around and, and address kind of hey, the main scholarship there. But, but in Deuteronomy, what is, it says in Deuteronomy that you shouldn't add nor take away anything. So that's an evangelical argument that's not even relevant to this discussion because 
Because if you make that argument, you're also going to probably be in the same line that says you're just denying prophecy, right? And, and so you're not going to be interested in this question. I was so, but this is, this is kind of like what we talked about with the book of Abraham, right? That we were saying the book of Abraham isn't really written by Abraham. And it's like these like lines passed down. So you think that there was some further scribe, you think it might've been like an oral, something like prophecy, like an oral prophecy. Maybe it was written down. And then as the future generations, they started writing things down and including uh, other things in it. Is that what you're, is that what that theory is? Marcy, I mean, yeah. I mean, it's, it's saying any of those, any of what seems to be predictive power, let's, well, not necessarily, but anything that points to multiple authorship isn't actually multiple authorship. It's those scribes that are writing, rewriting and rewriting. They're changing it to match their own agenda and stuff like that. Or, there, I mean, there, I mean, they're just changing it to make more sense for, I think or, what yeah, they're, Mormon says, they're trying to make it make more time. sense. Right. So like, yeah, I think the common example here is if someone's writing a story they're looking back at an ancient story and they use the word um, like spear or something and they, but they're really just referencing a weapon. If they're going to rewrite it today, maybe they'd use something more like a pepper spray or maybe they'll say something like a gun. So they're substituting in something completely different. That's not true, but it makes more sense to them. So I think that's maybe what the fair Mormon argument is trying to. Uh, this isn't a fair Mormon science. argument, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is the one that when I read, read fair Mormon, that's the one that they reference. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Maybe it was then. Sorry. So, so I think the biggest problem that, that this is trying to address though is, well, then how did Joseph Smith, why did he quote, you know, exactly how it came from the King James version, 19th century Bible that Isaiah wouldn't have had because those are later edits. And then once again, you can lean to the loose translation theory where you say, well, Joseph Smith probably had a Bible with him when he was translating. And so every time he came across this part, he just opened up his Bible that he was familiar with, copy and pasted, right? And so you can make that argument and it's a pretty coherent argument. And I think uh, this, this comment, I can't remember where I found it, by Tim Bone, is on some side of sort although, of- Although I don't, know, I don't know if I can hang with that argument because- Why? Like Oliver, Oliver Cowdery said that he would just talk, right? And so if the things are there word for word, right? And so we don't know a lot about how the translation happened, but I don't think, I don't know, there's-, there's but, the, but then what do you think of the, the BYU study that showed that most definitely B, Joseph Smith had access to the, um, that commentary, well, I can't remember the name, the commentary on the Bible when oh, he was I writing Joseph Smith translation. What, what did they say about it? I can't remember what they, what did the BYU study say? It's the most definite, it's like 99.99% certain that he had, he was referencing this biblical commentary uh, when he was writing the Joseph Smith translation. And, and so, so like, even though there's no eyewitness testimony of him having any text in the translation portion, it doesn't, that. You think he went home and he would, he would like go home and look at it or what, what are the people? Oh, and memorize it? That could be a possibility that would harmonize both of those. Oh, um, I thought I thought it would make more sense like the editor when he was like putting the, uh, you know, in the printing press when he would add a right. But we don't have any evidence of of uh, the because we have some of the original transcripts that. Oh, that's true. Yeah, that Skousen is looking at, and, and they didn't find any of that. Yeah, if I was if I was trying okay. to harmonize this, then I would say that Joseph Smith he would go home and he was because he studied the Bible a lot and then he would memorize parts of Isaiah. And then when he went back to the translation process and then he would quote from the Isaiah that he knew off the top of his head. 
Yeah, that's well, possible. And, and, you know, you, part of it, you know. They but he got about, it really well, though. <laughs> well, and, and all they, they talked in the scripture, all recovery for him to be able to do revelation. It talks about that you have to first study things out in your mind. I wonder if, you know, maybe oh, yeah. that was part of it, right? That you go home and you receive inspiration. What's the things that are going on? And, you know, I was like, I don't know. Yeah, I, can, I think I could harmonize that. Yeah. So, so, I mean, yeah. So that's part of the argument is that that's why it's, it's such a one-for-one one copy, almost one-for-one, one, let's say. It's not perfect, but it, it's, you know, it's definitely influenced somehow either by the King James Version 19th century Bible, what we see in Isaiah, or, or he's directly channeled, God is directly channeling something down him, right? You have to make one of those arguments because they're just, they're just way too close. Read Isaiah, read Second Nephi uh, 2 or whatever, compare Isaiah uh, 12, let's say. I, I don't know if I got this right, but. But that's so. This Tim Bone guy, he he's summing up this argument that uh, of the uh, kind of the new apologetics against it is that hey, it's not it's not a single author. It is a single author, but it's one that has been severely edited. And uh, the cool thing that we don't have to worry about is that most of the the very edited parts of Isaiah, let's say chapter one, chapter twenty four through twenty seven, chapter thirty one, chapter thirty four through thirty five, chapter thirty six through thirty nine, chapter forty. Um, all of those don't actually appear in the Book of Mormon, really. And so, so we don't have to worry about this so much because the major problematic ones don't show up in the Book of Mormon. Um, so, so that's kind of the new apologetics argument. And we'll just throw that up there. And uh, I'm not going to deal with this directly. We're just going to keep going with the rest of the argument. Life is all you know.